Good morning. Uh, this meeting will come to order. Welcome to the October 6, 2022 regular meeting of the Government Audit and Oversight Committee of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. I'm Supervisor Dean Preston, Chair of the Committee, joined by Vice Chair Connie Chan and uh, Supervisor Rafael Mandelman. The committee clerk today is uh, Stephanie Cabrera, and I uh, want to thank our team uh, at SFGov TV for staffing this meeting. Madam Clerk, any announcements? The Board of Supervisors and its committees are now convening hybrid meetings that allow in-person attendance and public comment, while still providing remote access and public comment via telephone. The Board recognizes that equitable public access is essential and will be taking public comment as follows. First, public comment will be taken on each item on this agenda. Those attending in person will be allowed to speak first, then we will take those who are waiting on the telephone line. For those watching either channel 26, 28, 78, or 99, and sfgovtv.org, the public comment call-in number is streaming across the screen. The number is 415-655-0001. Again, that is 415-655-0001. When prompted, enter the meeting ID 2484-549-8965, then pound, and then pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your line when your item of interest comes up and public comment is called, those joining us in person should line up to speak and those on the telephone should dial star three to also be added to the speaker line. If you're on your telephone, please remember to turn down your TV and all listening devices you may be using. As already indicated, we will be taking public comment from the attending in person first, and then we will go to our public comment telephone line. Alternatively, you may submit public comment in writing in either of the following ways. Email them to myself, the government audit and oversight clerk, at stephanie.c as in charles, a, b as in bay, r, e, r, a, at sfgov.org. If you submit public comment via email, it will be forwarded to the supervisors and also included as part of the official file. You may also send your written comments via U.S. Postal Service to our office in City Hall, 1 Dr. Carlton B. Goodlett Place, room 244, San Francisco, California, 94102. Finally, items acted upon today are expected to appear on the Board of Supervisors agenda for October 18th, unless otherwise stated. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Please call the first item. Item number one is a resolution regarding non-renewal of a Mills Act historical property contract with Claude Zellweger and Renee Zellweger, the owners of 621 Waller Street, Assessor's Parcel Block Number 0864, Lot Number 023, under Chapter 71 of the San Francisco Administrative Code, notifying the Assessor Recorder's Office of such non-renewal and authorizing the Planning Director to send notice of the non-renewal of the historical property contract to the owner and record a notice of non-renewal. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the public line at 415-655-0001, meeting ID 2484-549-8965, then pound and pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you will begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And uh, Supervisor Peskin is joining us today as the sponsor of this item and our resident uh, Mills Act expert uh, these days. So, uh, Supervisor Peskin, I'll turn it over to you for any remarks. Thank you, Chair Preston. Um, the Mills Act uh, of the state of California was enacted, I think, in the early 1970s, 
which was a state law that authorized local governments to, uh, in exchange for work on historic uh, resources uh, by property owners, those property owners in exchange could get uh, property tax reductions for a minimum period of 10 years uh, subsequent to the passage of the Mills Act, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors adopted Chapter 71 of the Administrative Code, which is our local implementing ordinance. Um, and there are any number of structures that receive Mills Act benefits under that law. Each and every one of those Mills Act contracts have to be approved by the Board of Supervisors. Uh, in this particular case, 621 Waller, uh, some eight years ago in 2014, uh, received a Mills Act contract that was approved by the Board of Supervisors that was predicated on work being done to that edifice, uh, which was supposed to have been completed legally pursuant to permits. Uh, unauthorized illegal work was conducted on that structure. A notice of enforcement and enforcement action was undertaken by the planning department, which ultimately resulted in a uh, certificate of appropriateness being issued after the fact by the Historic Preservation Commission in July of this year. The Historic Preservation Commission then unanimously recommended to this Board of Supervisors uh, that we um, not renew the Mills Act contract, which means that it would run for another 10 years. Um, and I am the sponsor of uh, the resolution uh, that, would for, that would move the non-renewal of the Millsack contract on 621 Waller Street. They would continue to enjoy reduced property taxes that would be reduced over the coming 10-year period until they reach zero at the end of that 10-year period. I want to thank Supervisor Mandelman, who is the co-sponsor uh, and whose district 621 Waller lies in, and I and the planning department are available to answer any questions the committee may have. Thank you, Supervisor Peskin. Um, it, unless there are any questions or comments from colleagues, why don't we go ahead and open up public comment on this item? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public who would like to make public comment for item number one? Please line up to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Public comment is limited to two minutes. Yes, hello, my name is Renee Zelger. I'm the property owner at 621 Waller Street. Um, I apologize, Claude could not be here. We were notified on Monday that we would have this hearing and he's out of town um, on business. Um, we've owned this property since 2010 um, and we're, was it, we were in contract with the Mills Act starting in 2014. Um, we started, uh, we, we started uh, working with architects to do an, overar an overarching renovation on the house, um, submitted those for permits and then in 2016 my husband was out of work for half a year. Um, when we uh, regained ability to move forward with the house in 2016, we were actively engaged in renovations on the property. 
um, in 2017, 2018, we were working with Rebecca Salgado and Shannon uh, Ferguson on um, certificates of appropriateness for some of the work that we were doing. Um, and <clears throat> I think for us, we were really enthusiastic, had very little experience with um, renovations and moved forward on some items that, um, for example, the railings and um, the front. Am I done? <laughs> okay. You have 30 seconds. Um, anyways, we had moved forward on things that we didn't realize. In the meantime, we did make um, many repairs that were under our Mills Act contract, totaling um, $140,000. We've been working with uh, Turnbull and the city since 2020 to try to get um, the unpermitted work and all of the work up into compliance. And we hope that you would reconsider our... We're cutting off, but your time has elapsed. Seeing no more in public com person comment, we'll move to our call-in line. There are currently two listeners and zero callers. There's no more public comment. Thank you. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, any additional questions or comments or, or uh, Supervisor Peskin? With all due respect to the property owner, and I, I just have to say for the record that when one enters into a Mills Act, um, one is held to a higher standard. Uh, and one actually affixes one's name to a contract and in exchange for that gets significant uh, tax benefits. And if you look at the contract, which is a part of the file, the responsibilities, um, including compliance with uh, the laws of the city and county of San Francisco, enforcement actions, what what have you are all set forth um, in this contract that the property owners signed on December 18th of 2014 um, and did not adhere to. I do want to say that the recommendations of the Historic Preservation Commission I thought were actually quite lenient. Um, I, I actually, and we have done this in other circumstances, um, we could terminate the contract immediately. That's not what we're doing. We are uh, calling for non-renewal, um, which I thought was a very lenient, if not kind, position for the Historic Preservation Commission to take. Thank you, Supervisor Peskin. Um, and seeing no other comments, um, Supervisor Peskin, would you like to make a motion to send this item to the full board with recommendation? I would if I could, but I am uh, not on the correct. So Thank I can't. you. I'm used to you sitting in. Absolutely. <laughs> I will go ahead and make that motion. Thank you. Please call the roll. Vice Chair Chan? Aye. Member Mandelman? Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Uh, Madam Clerk, please call item two. Item number two is an ordinance amending the administrative code to name the permanent supportive housing development located at 1321 Mission Street in memory of public health advocate, advocate Margot Antonetti. 
Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the public comment line at 415-655-0001, meeting ID 2484-549-8965, then pound and pound again. If you haven't done so already, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you will begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Supervisor Mandelman is the sponsor of this item. Thank you for bringing this forward. And I'll turn it over to you, Supervisor Mandelman, for any remarks and to introduce speakers. Thank you, Chair Preston. Uh, Margo Antonetti is beloved by many people, and so it's been um, my uh, great honor to uh, sponsor this ordinance, which would officially rename the Permanent Supportive Housing Building at 1321 Mission Street, the Margo, in honor of Margo Antonetti, who passed away on May 26, 2020. Margo spent three decades working in the nonprofit world and as a civil servant, playing an integral role in the creation of hundreds of units of supportive housing. She also influenced city policy on critical public health issues, including HIV safety net and mental health services, harm reduction, and supportive housing policy. Margo was a champion for housing with as few barriers to entry and as many supports as possible, and was firmly committed to ensuring that people thrived in permanent supportive housing. Um, she was not only professionally committed to helping our most vulnerable residents, but as I have pointed out before, she was the kind of person who would actually individually see people and on the street and then try to figure out how she could help them person by person. Margo's work touched many aspects of our city's homeless services. She founded the Direct Access to Housing Division at DPH, helped create the Delivering Innovation Supported Housing nonprofit, and then spent four years managing the newly created Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing portfolio of permanent supportive housing. Um, people sometimes ask what we are doing with all of the money that we spend on um, homelessness in this city. Margot's legacy is an important reminder that the city has helped tens of thousands of people exit homelessness and is currently housing more than 10,000 formerly homeless individuals every night who would otherwise be on our streets and in our shelter system. Naming 1321 Mission after Margot is an appropriate tribute to her legacy, which is serve as a reminder that we can all step up as individuals and as a community to do more to help end homelessness in San Francisco. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, and please add me as a co-sponsor on this item, Madam Clerk. Um, if there are not further comments, uh, do, do you have uh, presenters on this item? Um, I believe uh, that we have uh, Lauren Hall and Sherilyn Adams um, who are going to give a brief presentation. Thank you. Welcome. PowerPoint, I just don't know if did it make it to the clerk? I can, it did not? Okay. I have it, but I'm not sure. I'll, I'll if you have a USB, you can load it to that laptop right there. Okay, maybe I'll do that while you speak, and then, okay, I'll just get us started. Um, thanks again. My name is Lauren Hall. I'm the executive director for DISH, and I had the amazing good fortune of calling Margot Antonetti my friend. And if you knew her, you are lucky, as she brightened up the room every time she entered with her smile, her wicked sense of humor, and her impeccable style. Margo spent decades, as Supervisor Mandelman noted, working in the nonprofit sector and as a civil servant, spurring the creation of hundreds, if not thousands, of units of supportive housing and influencing city policy for the better, understanding what was needed for critical issues, including serving folks living with HIV, 
active substance users, and people's need, deep need for housing. While at DPH, she was an integral part of the formation of DISH, helping us lay the groundwork for the organization that we dreamed of becoming. She helped turn our shared commitment to operate housing without barriers to enter and many supports to ensure that people thrived into a reality. Her focus was really on welcoming home the most vulnerable people. They often fell through the cracks in the safety net of our city services so that they could find stability, care, and dignity. She put the needs of our tenants first, but also had deep faith in our team and, and the team of nonprofits. She remained a trusted partner in her most recent position as the manager of supportive housing programs at the city's Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And she was a standard bearer in the early days of the department, bringing her deep knowledge on what it takes to truly welcome someone home. Margot had very high standards and held all of us to them in our work, our outfits, our shoes, and especially in our skills at making fun of life and sometimes of each other. But Margot made us better at everything we did. The building, uh, the panoramic at 1321 Mission, is an example of supportive housing done better. And I am extremely grateful for the opportunity to operate this site on behalf of the city in partnership with UCSF Citywide and Compass Family Services. When we applied to the solicitation uh, to operate the building, we immediately asked if we could rename the site, because it was always our dream to get this building and then be able to pay tribute to this amazing woman. Little did we know what was involved in renaming a city property, but the twists and turns of this process as they've unfolded, we've often laughed thinking of how Margo would have enjoyed all the drama and what she was putting us through to make it happen. So I really thank you in advance for supporting the request to rename this property to honor this incredible and dearly missed fierce and fabulous woman. And I'll turn it over to the amazing Sherilyn Adams. <laughs> Hi all, Sherilyn Adams, Executive Director at Larkin Street Youth Services. Um, it's hard to follow Lauren, that was beautiful. I mean, I think at the end of the, the day when I think about what Margot meant to the city, I met Margot in 1997 when I joined Baker Places and Margot was there and then she moved on to the city and eventually I moved on to Larkin Street. But when I think about what, what Margot brought to the city, what Margot brought to people experiencing homelessness is exactly what Lauren said. She wanted to walk people home. So I can't think of a more fitting way to honor her work her legacy and her deep, deep, deep commitment and belief that nobody should live outside and that we collectively and individually had a responsibility to do everything that we could and can to make sure that people could come home. And so having a building named after Margot, the Margot, is a statement about walking people home. Just about ready. Thank you. About the delay, um, I, do, I just wanted to share with you. I think we often talk about supportive housing in here, and you all don't get a chance to sort of get a little bit of a view into the housing unless you come to the opening end of the tour, and that's always a little bit challenging to really get a feel for it. So I just wanted to share a couple of photos of the building just to get a sense of really how amazing this property is. When we first, uh, when, when Margot first passed, 
uh, she had been such a critical part of our work. I'm like, we need to rename one of our buildings after her. And then we're like, well, maybe we want to find one that's not in the master lease portfolio, something with a little more flash and flair and beauty. Although Margot did love our properties. Um, so I wanted to just show you a, a little bit of, of what we what we have, and then also an uh, incredible art piece that is going to be, that's it, been installed in the property in her honor. Through the chair, just checking, did you send me the email? I have not received an email just yet. Madam Clerk, can, can we potentially open up uh, public comment and continue working on this and maybe come back Through to... Through the chair, I actually do have it now. I just Great. need to Thank you. open it. Just one moment, please. Supervisor Mandelman, I also wanted to thank your staff, Jackie Thornhill, for her support through this process. She's been incredibly helpful for all of us to understand resolutions versus ordinances and what we needed to do. So thank you. Thank, thank you for you that. Thank you for doing that as I should have done that. <laughs> Apologies to Jackie Thornhill and thanks to Jackie Thornhill. Sure. So if you could just go to the next slide. Thank you. <laughs> I apologize. Uh, it is not showing. One second. We caught a glimpse for a minute and uh, seem to have lost the visual. We'll be quick. There's only like three slides. Okay. There it goes. <laughs> Maybe four. Okay. So I just wanted to take a quick peek. Uh, the building. Um, the Margo, uh, 1321 Mission, this is what we call it now. Um, there are beautiful units. There's 120 studio units, and there'll be 39 units for families. As you can see from these photos, there's a beautiful roof deck. The units are new. They have very modern amenities, full kitchens and bathrooms, which we know is not, we're not able to do in all of our units of supportive housing. I think the next slide gives you another interior shot of the bedrooms. And then just a little bit of a glimpse of Margot on the next, if you can go to the next slide. I just want to say that Margot was, a, you know, was certainly held us accountable to all the work we did, but she also was first to celebrate with us, showed up at every opening of any one of our properties. I think many providers can say that, that Margot was always there cheering them on. This work is incredibly challenging, and there's times where I think the provider community and the, the city family sometimes have to butt heads because this problem is so challenging and so we end up on opposite sides of conversations at times. But at the end of the day, we're all working for the same goal of ending homelessness and Margot was certainly someone who could balance what the city needed to see happen, what provider needs were, and really made us feel like we were on, in this, on this team together. If you could go to the next slide. I wanted to just call out uh, the artist Sebastian Rolden is here today, a dear friend of Margot's, and she created, uh, now with, I believe the name is now The House That Margot Built, um, a, an art piece that has 
I forget how many houses, Sebastian, I'm going to get it wrong, 189 houses that many of us um, put things inside to honor Margot, and so that is now in the lobby of the building as a way to commemorate all of the different ways that she impacted. There's city staff, folks that participated, community members, friends, family, and loved ones, and it's really been a reminder when you walk through the door of you know, all of the impact that Margot had and how, how much we need each other to create enough supportive housing. And with that, just the final slide is another piece that you may have seen in the Castro that's been up to recognize her work in the LGBTQ community and that we're hoping to also uh, have up at the building. So I just want to thank you so much for your attention, your patience with technology challenges that are totally my fault. And um, we look forward to, uh, to renaming the Margot with your permission. Thank you. Where is that piece now? The Tanya Wisherin. Where is that last piece currently? It's hanging right now outside of Spunk Salon at 19th oh, and Collingwood. Cool. Yeah, Thanks. it's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you both very much for uh, the presentations and for all of your work. Um, and why don't we go ahead and open up public comment on this item? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public in the chamber who would like to make public comment for this item? Please line up to your right. Remote public call in members please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. It appears there are no speakers in chambers, and there are currently two listeners, zero in the queue. There are no speakers online. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is closed. Uh, any uh, final comments? Uh, no, just thanks again to Jackie and also to um, all of the uh, fierce um, uh, fierce women who have been around Margot and are doing the work along with her. Thank you, Supervisor Mandelman, for bringing this forward. And uh, is there a motion to send item two to the full board with positive recommendation? So moved. Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes, and uh, please call item three. Item number three is an ordinance amending the health code and pol police code to extend the sunset date for provisions governing medical cannabis dispensaries from December 31st, 2022 to December 31st, 2024, and to allow the extension of temporary cannabis business permits for additional 120-day terms through December 31st, 2024, rather than December 31st, 2022 affirming the planning department's determination under the California Environmental Quality Act and making findings of consistency with the general plan and the eight priority policies of planning code section 101.1. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the public comment line at 415-655-0001, meeting ID 2484-549-8965, then pound, then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait for the system to indicate you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Clerk. And Supervisor Mandelman is the sponsor of this item. I want to thank Supervisor Mandelman for his leadership on this and for tracking this issue so closely throughout the pandemic and bringing this before us. So I will turn it over to you. Thank you, Chair Preston, and again, thanks are due Jackie Thornhill, who, um, who has worked on this ordinance as well, um, inheriting uh, uh, all things cannabis-related in my office from Tom Temprano. Um, 
The ordinance would amend the health code and police code to extend the sunset date for provisions governing medical cannabis dispensaries from December 31st, 2022 to December 31st, 2024. This is the second time the board uh, will have extended the sunset date with the prior extension um, I authored and we got passed last November, set to expire at the end of the year. The legislation will allow long-standing cannabis businesses, including those that operated prior to the passage of Prop 64, to continue to temporarily operate while their applications for permanent cannabis businesses are being processed. Extending this date is an important show of good faith by the city as we continue to help these local businesses that voluntarily came forward to enter the regulated cannabis marketplace. In the absence of this new legislation, small cannabis businesses would be forced to cease operations at the beginning of the upcoming year, resulting in widespread closures to the benefit of the illicit market, an outcome none of us want. So um, I think we should pass this. Um, and then uh, we do have um, uh, Sophie Hayward, I believe, from the Office of the City Administrator, Nikesh Patel from the Office of Cannabis, and Ray Law from the Office of Cannabis, and I think Nikesh may be giving a brief presentation with the others available for questions if they come up. Welcome. Good morning, Chair Preston, Supervisors Chan and Menwin. My name is Nikesh, I'm the Director of the San Francisco Office of Cannabis, and first and foremost, want to thank you for your consideration and the opportunity to provide some background on this item. The ordinance will extend the sunset date for provisions governing medical cannabis dispensaries and temporary cannabis businesses for additional 120-day terms from December 2022 through December 2024. I'll run through some brief additional information just to provide a little bit more context. First, the ordinance will amend the health code to allow the existing businesses operating under medical cannabis dispensary permits to continue until December 31, 2024. This deadline extension is necessary to successfully transition our medical cannabis dispensaries to recreational adult use sales and allow them to both continue operation and to remain compliant while supporting the city's broader equity goals. As part of their permits right now, these medical cannabis dispensaries commit to support the city's equity goals and their temporary authorization is a condition of their successful support for the equity program. These commitments typically include providing financial assistance, technical assistance, and donations, and holding charity and, and events for the equity community at large. So um, we, we really do value the commitments that these businesses provide to the equity community. In addition, this ordinance will extend the effective date of temporary cannabis business permits through December 31, 2024 as well. These businesses operate under temporary permits as part of the amnesty program that San Francisco initiated to allow existing, illicit, non-retail cannabis business operators to come forward, make themselves and their activities known to the city, and come into compliance with our laws. In conclusion, this ordinance legislation impacts local businesses that voluntarily came forward to enter the regulated cannabis space. They are businesses that availed themselves to the city's comprehensive cannabis rules and regulations. As Supervisor Mendelman noted, in the absence of this legislation, these small businesses could cease and, as a result, potentially return to the illicit space. The Office of Cannabis is not immune from the challenges that the pandemic brought and, in part, affected our capacity to process these permits in a more expeditious manner. But with additional staffing provided through grant support from the state, we have hired three additional staff members who will be dedicated to working on permitting applications, including converting 
applications that these medical cannabis dispensaries have submitted, as well as the applications submitted by temporary cannabis business permit holders. This concludes my presentation. Supervisors, thank you again for the opportunity to speak to this matter. And I'm joined by my staff, Ray Law. We're here to answer any questions you may have. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Vice Chair Champ. Thank you, um, Chair Preston. I, I think I'd just like to understand a little bit, what are the numbers of backlog at this moment? Absolutely. So when we speak about the existing industry, the, the industry that will be affected by this legislation, for medical cannabis dispensaries, we have approximately 33 medical cannabis businesses that are operating with medical cannabis dispensary permits at this point in time. There are approximately another 20 that are not operating but have submitted applications. To be clear, it's not, we're not sure how many of these 20 would move forward with the applications that they submitted several years ago. We do know that of the, the total of about 50, 33 are active with our system right now, and we suspect that they will move forward for permanent conversion. On the temporary side, there are about 60 businesses that are operating with temporary permits. Again, it's difficult to have a good gauge of how many of these will move forward for permanent conversion, but the majority of these have submitted applications for permanent conversion. Supervisor Chan, I, I hope that, that context helps a little bit. Um, through the chair, I, I think the question also is then, I, I totally get it, like you wouldn't know whether they're really moving forward until you actually talk to them and process their applications. So how do you, it sounds to me that there are about 33 that are actually medical, uh, as an existing medical cannabis permit, and then about 60, they are uh, just applications and for permits, and whether it's medical or recreational, and then another 20 that you mentioned also is that you're not sure. I, I think I, I just like some clarification. Sure, I can. How I can do take you break a, down the cat, like for those sure. numbers? I can. I can um, break those numbers down a little bit more. So, when we talk about the medical cannabis universe. That is about 50 in total, but 33 of those have, are active within our system and the Department of Public Health system right now. So they have a permit from the Department of Public Health to operate, and they are authorized by our office to engage in recreational use. The other 20 or so, we haven't heard from them, and they are not active right now. So of that universe of 50, I think it's fair to say that the 33 that are active would move for permanent conversion, and then there's the possibility that the other 20 may, but it's unclear. And then what are the 60 that you mentioned? That's right. The 60 refers to the number of businesses that are operating with temporary permits. These are businesses that are non-retail. They are on the supply side, and they are businesses that entered through the amnesty program several years ago. Of these 60, it's unclear to us how many will ultimately move for permanent conversion, but it's fair to say that the majority will because they have submitted applications. I'm, I'm happy to have Ray provide additional clarity with respect to the, the temporary side as well. And the temporary are temporary medical cannabis permits? They, they are temporary cannabis businesses apart from the medical context. The medical cannabis dispensaries, they're retail. These 60 businesses are on the supply Fine. side. They're not medical cannabis. They are temporarily permitted for recreational, for cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, and so on. Ray, anything else? 
Thanks, Nikesh, and thank you for the question, Special Chen. So on the supply side, um, they manufacture, cultivate uh, cannabis products to provide for both uh, medical and recreational use cannabis. And to your question about the 20 inactive MCDs, in other words, I think the cash explained um, that uh, very well. But another way to understand is they all have their tickets to submit an application, but they have not done so yet. And another reason why we said, oh, for the 33 MCDs and the other 60 temporary permit holders, they all have submitted their applications, but we won't know how much they really want to move forward only because as a condition of their temporary authorization from our office, they were required to submit their permanent permit application with our office in September 2018. If they did not do that, which means they will not be able to keep their temporary authorization. So that's the part of the reasons why we have those applications in our universe, but we won't know until we actually review the applications. And to your point, Spicer Chen, in communication with them to get uh, to know more about that. So I am only asking these questions really because we already extended once, and this is you're returning to continue for extension, and you're now asking for additional two years. Um, I just wanted to understand then what is your strategy and approach to clear your backlog? Yeah, absolutely. And Ray, feel free to take a stab at this as well. But we are highly motivated to clear this backlog. We are encouraged by the additional three members that we have that are dedicated to permitting. And probably most importantly, we have cleared the backlog of applications we've received from equity applicants, which means that we can now move to the MCDs and our temporary permit holders. So there have been a couple of things that we've been doing that encourage me to think that this will be completed before the two years. One of them is we've been in active conversations with planning and the Department of Building Inspections to better understand what the pathway looks like for these types of applications because they are different than the ones we've been processing in some key respects. One of those being that for the medical cannabis dispensaries, they are in operational businesses. They are in businesses that are more or less in compliance. And so we suspect that the pathway to conversion for them will be faster than for our businesses that are starting from scratch. And then on the temporary side, those businesses are at varying levels of completion and varying levels of compliance. So we suspect it may take a little bit longer, but there will be cases there that might move more expeditiously. So we're encouraged, um, and more than anything, we can now actually resume processing those applications because we've cleared the backlog of cases that were mandated by the code to process first, at least for the time being. Thank you, I appreciate it. I, you actually, with this, uh, reminded me, you know, the last time when we had this conversation, I, I either in the hearing or, or um, during our briefing, was right. that, you know, you were trying to prioritize the equity uh, applications. And I think that was like, if I remember the number correctly, it was like roughly 98. That's right. 98 equity uh, applicants that you have to deal with and that you have to prioritize them. So I appreciate that. I appreciate the work that you the you as a team has been doing, prioritizing, you know, equity applicants. And uh, I look forward to seeing you cleaning the backlog and glad that you have three additional staff. Yeah, <laughs> we, we appreciate it. And we're happy to say that we've issued 31 equity permits, which is almost double than where the number was at the beginning of 2021. So progress is happening. It's a little bit slow, but we're really, really hopeful to continue that momentum and then also add the existing industry players. Thank you. And thank you, Chair Preston. Thank you, Vice Chair Chan. Um, and unless there are further comments or questions, let's go ahead and open public comment. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public in the chamber who would like to make public comment for item three? Please line up to your right. 
Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Seeing no people in chambers, let's move to our remote call-in line. There are currently three listeners and zero in the queue. There are no speakers for this item, Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, Supervisor Mandelman, uh, any final comments or a motion? Um, no final comments, but I would move that we forward this to the full board with positive recommendation. Madam Clerk, please call the roll. Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. The motion passes. Um, Madam Clerk, please call item four. Item number four is a hearing on the city's rent relief program to get greater clarity on how funds are being allocated, make sure funds are going to as many tenants as possible, and to explore how we can use all available resources to ensure that no tenants are left behind, and requesting the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development to report. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the public comment line at 415-655-0001. Meeting ID 2484-549-8965, then pound, and then pound again. If you haven't already done so, please dial star 3 to line up to speak. The prompt will indicate you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted, and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Um, colleagues, in June 2021, this committee held a hearing as the city was standing up a, a local rent relief program um, to get clarity on how funds were to be allocated and explore how we could use all available resources to ensure that no tenants uh, were left behind. Um, when we learned on September 21st of this year, just a couple weeks ago, that the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development was putting a pause on accepting new applications to the rent relief program effective uh, two days after that announcement, September 23rd. Uh, we decided to revive this file, bring this issue back to committee, um, and, and uh, get some additional clarity on how and why the decision to pause the rent relief program was made. Um, and perhaps most importantly, how to make sure that we continue uh, to protect uh, impacted tenants, make sure they get the help they need to be able to stay in their homes and avoid mounting rent debt. Um, I, I want to note that our city has really gone above and beyond to ensure that we have local funds available to meet the tremendous need uh, from tenants uh, impacted by the pandemic. And we were among the first cities to study the issue with an October 2020 BLA report uh, that my office requested. Uh, that report laid the groundwork for this body to come together to allocate $42 million of Prop I uh, revenue in 2021 for uh, COVID-related rent relief. Uh, we've continued to add funds for that purpose, um, and by March of this year, uh, that figure had grown to approximately $52 million to ensure San Franciscans did not lose their homes, uh, funds that were approved by this board for that purpose. Um, my understanding, and we'll get into the details during the presentation uh, and Q&A, is that the full amount of funds, um, both dispersed and available to date, for, uh, is uh, at uh, 
just over $76 million, um, and, which is a really significant uh, commitment by the city uh, to tenants during this pandemic. Um, and you know, when the state of California on March 31st of this year stopped accepting applications to the state rent relief program, um, we as a city and, and really among the leading cities uh, in certainly in California, but probably across the nation, um, we're in a position where we actually have the funds to make sure we can continue providing assistance despite the state um, really abandoning tenants uh, starting uh, in April of this year. So I want to recognize the work of uh, MoCD, of HSH, of all our community-based uh, nonprofit partners who have been standing up these programs in a constantly um, changing landscape, uh, a bit of a roller coaster ride through the pandemic um, around state interventions and federal interventions. Um, I know that the leadership and staff of MoCD and HSH have really spent a lot of time ensuring this program is reaching San Franciscans in need. And uh, I can tell you I've spoken with most of our CBO partners and, and uh, the nonprofits and their staff have been working tirelessly to make sure residents are connected with resources and relief. So I want to be clear that this hearing is not uh, in any sense to take away from any of that work or to criticize uh, any of that work. Instead, it's just to get uh, really uh, clarity on, on where the program is. Um, but I do want to express the concern that the Board of Supervisors uh, my office included, uh, and, and I believe the entire board, were notified literally 48 hours before the local program was going to be paused for a period of uh, what will get clarity, but I believe is months. Um, you know, this, I can think of few issues that are more important to most of our constituents, particularly those who are renting their homes, than the availability of rent relief, and we need to be able to communicate with our constituents, especially after we've set aside all these funds, uh, to make sure that the, the administration is, is uh, continuing to get those funds uh, out, out the door. So, um, I, I really, I hope that this not only opens up a, a good, or brings some clarity today, but also um, going forward that there's a more open line of communication and that the board is given significantly more notice and the public significantly more notice um, if these kind of changes are, are happening. So, you know, we've got a lot of residents that are struggling still to make rent that are, you know, we have and we'll hear more about it. You know, we have some existing local protections against evictions, but the rent debt is still mounting for people. That's the whole point of this program, is to alleviate that rent debt, prevent evictions, and bring some peace of mind uh, to folks who have many other things to be concerned about right now. We don't want their ongoing housing to be one of them. So um, I understand Director Shaw from OCD uh, is presenting. I don't see him in chambers, so I assume remotely. Um, Director Shaw, are you available? I'm here, Mr. Chair. Welcome. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. Good morning, Chair Preston and members of the committee. My name is Eric Shaw. I'm the director of the San Francisco Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. And I'm pleased um, to share a status update on the Emergency Rental Assistance Program with you today. Um, Kira, next slide. 
So as you know, we've actually had a steady state program we call um, for some time within San Francisco, um, but the operations and scale significantly changed as we responded to COVID. So prior to COVID, we had about $3.8 million in local and federal sources, and we served about 2,400 households annually um, through a number of what were then, I guess, pre-HSH providers, but similar providers to who work with HSH right now. Um, during COVID recovery, we got a significant amount of federal resources and state resources. And over the next 18 months, that scaled to $206 million um, with 20,000 households with a significant operation around operations and um, for outreach and operations um, from both state and local partners. Next slide, please. I am proud to say that we probably have one of the most effective outreach, for, um, outreach campaigns um, within local history. Um, as it relates to mobilizing 10 local-based community organizations and other community partners around both outreach and the distribution of funds. Um, I'm happy to say in, in response, I think, to, to um, the leadership of the mayor and input from the community and yourselves, um, we made sure to have a multilingual program. Our program actually became the model for how the state provided their translation services. And we significantly really reached the most vulnerable with 93% of the funds going to people that were between zero and 30% AMI. And us having a real commitment to making sure we're responding to communities of color um, where we know this disproportionately impacted, um, where, these, where COVID disproportionately impacted rental assistance um, and rental needs um, with 36% of our resources going to the Latinx community, 16% to the African-American community and 13% to the Asian-American community. Um, as you know, um, we have actually gone through a series of iterations. We talk about the emergency rental assistance program. We launched our program actually earlier as a local program with local funds. And then, and I believe that started in March or April of 2021 with us transitioning in June to the state program um, because they were able to administer the resources a lot more. And so in that instance, um, the state did process about three quarters of the applications, um, but there was still some, some, some local resources that were being mobilized before. There was case management of applications that came in before the transition to the state. Um, and then now, as the state has stopped accepting applications as of April 1st, 2022, um, we have transitioned back into our, we are transitioning back, I won't say we have, um, into um, a locally administered program with our local partners. Next slide, please. I do want to note that um, the emergency rental assistance program is more than just cutting a check. Um, there is significant amount of outreach that goes out to there to make sure that different communities, especially communities in need, um, are understanding that this resource is available. We, we've made um, significant partnerships and coalitions with a number of nonprofit partners and including the apartment association to make sure that both landlords and tenants know about this program. Um, and then we make sure once again, that's meeting diverse populations is multilingual. But there also as a component of case management associated with that now, especially in a post, um, as we think about sort of a, 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 a longer term COVID recovery, 
that we're now looking at not just the immediate need around rent, but also the connection to other services. We're partnering with OEWD to make sure that um, people, are, if, if they say that they need employment resources or connected to, to jobs that are coming up, but there's a lot more case management that's happening. In addition to that, uh, whereas, whereas we are still also doing a significant amount of verification to make sure people have income, to make sure they're connected to, um, you know, uh, verifying the address and doing the, the additional reviews and monitoring that's needed. And then it's the distribution. And so I know a lot of people think they ask for the resource and then a check is cut, but there are a series of steps in there to really make sure that we're stabilizing residents um, that we're connecting them to the services that are needed and that we're being responsible stewards of the money. In addition to um, mobilizing the resources and working with our people, that are our organizations that are distributing the rental checks to make sure they're in, in compliance with, um, with our fiscal and reporting requirements. Next, please. And so where we are right now, um, to be candid, is that um, we have about 4,500 pending applications. And we are trying to understand um, the nature of those applications, and we're trying to understand um, uh, the resources and, and systems we can tweak internally to make sure that we're being more responsive. Um, we have a really strong outreach operation I think we've been very effective in making people ask for that resource, um, but there really is some bottlenecks um, in the terms of doing the case management, doing the verification, and actually cutting the checks. And so the analogy that I would like to um, use as we relate to this is that when we launched the initial ERAP program locally, we were building a plane and flying at the same time. Um, I wanna thank our team and I wanna thank our community partners for having that play now be built. But I know sometimes that, you know, we have to distribute the rate, the weight and make sure that we're rebalancing appropriately to keep the plane on its trajectory. So that's where we are right now. Um, we were understanding and processing, we were doing the appropriate analysis to understand how many applications we were getting in, what the nature of those applications were, and how many applications could be processed in a year, I mean, processed in a month. And what we're seeing right now is that we are getting a lot more applications in than that can be processed. And in the expectation of um, timely responsiveness to constituents, really trying to address this true emergency need, understanding the capacity constraints of the system as a whole, um, we made a decision to, um, to pause receiving more applications to be able to clear the backlog that we have right now and to make the necessary um, administrative adjustments such that we can continue to have a streamlined and, and responsive steady state program. And so that took um, some series of analysis. It took some consultation with the community partners. It took some consultation with the program managers. It took some consultation with um, my, some fellow directors, um, including Director McSpadden from HSH, because we partnered with them on these funds. Um, and the determination was made. Um, as you know, we have worked really hard to be a partner with the Board of Supervisors on getting information out as fast as possible on um, making sure that we have shared communications plans. And we just realized we were at a critical moment 
um, with the applications we were seeing and what was being processed, um, that we would not, we, and we were hearing some feedback, particularly even from our front desk, that we wanted to make sure we'd be responsive and timely and being able to award these, 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 this assistance out. And we knew that we were, we were straining that system. So that's where we are right now with the intention of doing this pause to make sure we can process the applications we need, understand where we are and who's been applying, understand the capacity of our partners, understand the capacity of our respective teams, and understanding in the end that um, we have an appropriate amount of redundancies within our system around tenant protections, such that um, a pause and ERAP is not going to... Pause and ERAP um, is a, there are other tenant protections and other programs in space that we felt comfortable with that a pause and ERAP that there were still the appropriate protections in place to keep people within their homes. Um, next slide, please. And so, as I sort of mentioned before, that we really are in we we aren't in a steady state program yet. We really are transitioning from what was a local program to a state program to a local program with some residuals um, related to the state program. And so um, we, at some point, were prioritizing folks that did not get funded by the state program for some reason. Otherwise, um, we know that some folks got 18 months assistance, and that we there was additional resources that were needed, and understanding how to supplement that. Um, and so there's a lot of spaces right now that we are not in a full steady state program. We are looking right now at how to clear um, any backlog that may have been from the transition itself. Um, there was a moment where we need to sort of stand up. Um, we will never have the equivalent amount of resources that the state had to process these applications. Um, and we understand and we're doing some learnings from the challenges the state had with the volume that they had and lessons learned in that to make sure we can apply that to support um, our community development partners that are, that are resourcing and operationalizing this program. Um, as with um, ourselves as a city and ourselves with our CPO partners, there are some capacity challenges as relates to staffing. Um, and we are trying to make sure that we are recognizing and supporting um, not asking our partners to do more than they can do and then penalizing them or, 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 or straining them more. Um, I think we're, everyone's working as hard as they can to get as much done as possible, to be as responsive as possible in this instance, but we do have to recognize there are some capacity challenges um, around the operation of this program. The reality in the end, too, is that we know that financial impacts continue. So, you know, I think we initially thought that 18 months back rent would reset a lot of folks, and I think that we're seeing right now that there are still some lingering um, impacts economically to some of our most vulnerable households. And we're asking ourselves now, um, we need to have the case management to understand um, and address some structural issues that were highlighted and exacerbated by COVID-19, but still continue to exist in what we call the steady state. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's still some economic uncertainty now that we're seeing um, not just the impacts of an economic shutdown, but also the impacts now of inflation um, and some other costs that are coming up right now that, that there still um, continues to have that exist. So there are some new um, shocks that are impacting households that are asking for this assistance. Next slide. 
And so, but the reality is that we are still, as we think about um, this, this transition to steady state and as we operationalize this space, and we do, we do want to recognize that there are local funds that are available from both Prop I and Prop C, Prop C being for the long term. Um, we are learning once again from our uh, from from who was applied for this assistance before and who we know are the most vulnerable. Um, in that instance, we want to note that we are prioritizing um, past homelessness, extremely low income, and risk of eviction um, in terms of getting these resources out. Um, with the prioritization that if someone has been formerly homeless. Um, and they're at risk right now. We, we want to minimize. We want to minimize um, any shocks that would put them back into homelessness. Um, we're recognizing with evictions now and displacement. And I know that um, Chairman Preston, this is something you've asked of us before. We continue to work on that. And then what we're looking at right now is also a pipeline. That if there are some structural issues around very low-income folks, is emergency rental assistance um, the best investment? Um, to stabilize them. And so we continue to work with the housing authority as new vouchers are coming online, the housing authority, HUD, and the state to understand how we can identify people who are structurally um, in need of permanent resources for housing and how that aligns with the existing wait list for vouchers and other programs that come up from both the state and from the federal government to invest in them. Um, once again, we are understanding um, our, our, our portfolio of affordable housing and where people are within the list um, for accessing our housing and our different housing programs. But we see, once again, um, as we transition to permanent, permanent space, that we will still prioritize those that are most vulnerable and at risk. Um, we are understanding the amount of resources that will be coming in for us to make some decisions about how we prioritize and how we're able to get resources out. And then we're understanding how to ha be more intentional um, and systemic and correct connecting to our other housing stabilization programs where there actually are resources for keeping people and putting people in homes. Next slide, please. So as we still note, there are existing protections for tenants and tenants will continue to be protected. Um, we have emergency ordinance permanently prohibiting evictions due to COVID-19 rents originally due from July for July 1st, 2022, until the emergency proclamation is terminated. As you know, we fully fund tenant right to counsel, and we are still um, making sure that, that tenants are connected to that resource. Um, we, have, we are um, working really closely with the case managers to understand um, evictions that are going to court and understanding how to mobilize those resources and work with the court to deploy those to minimize evictions. And then we are continuing to keep um, with our, our counseling, our mediation, and our other assistance programs. Um, and so with that, I am joined by um, Ugo Ramirez, who's our program director, and Shin Makopoulos, who is the director of um, policy and government affairs. And I am happy to take any questions that you have. Thank you, Director Shaw, and appreciate the the context and um, and really all the work uh, you and your team have have put into this. And I you know I, I will say for those who at the beginning of the pandemic uh, assumed that this might turn into an eviction epidemic as well as uh, a health one, I, I think San Francisco has shown that when we want to take action and 
and dedicate the funds and the and the resources um, to uh, to preventing that that we can. Um, so I, I did have some questions just to get a little more detail. You addressed some of the things uh, that were that I was going to ask about. So thank you. Um, but uh, a few others. One is I think one of your slides said that that there's 43 million um, available remaining that's available uh, for rent relief. Um, can you clarify how much has been spent to date through this program and how many people have been served? Yeah, Certainly. I, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry, would you like for me to answer? Um, you, can, you can do that, Ugo, that's fine. Sure, that sounds good. Well, good morning, uh, Chair Preston and committee members, uh, Chan and Mandelman. Um, so, uh, Ugo Ramirez with uh, the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development. So to date, our local program has served almost 5,000 households uh, with uh, almost $34 million. So the $43 million uh, is still available for additional uh, financial assistance for pending applica applications. Thank you uh, for that, that information. Also, what can you break down what are the sources of so the, the total, it's the 34 that's been distributed and then 43 that's still on hand. Uh, can you yeah. break down the sources? I know you know, I'm familiar with most of it, but I but if you could just take the public. Certainly. Yeah. yeah, so most of the 34 million uh, is made up of one-time U.S. Treasury funds for the first round of emergency rental assistance. Um, uh, and several... And the remaining is mostly Prop C funds, our city or home uh, funds that were uh, allocated uh, last fiscal year. Uh, and so the remaining 43 million is comprised primarily of general fund uh, from uh, the mayor and board's uh, uh, budget. I think that was 32 million, um, an additional 10 million in uh, Prop I supplemental and, um, and then Prop C funding as well from this current fiscal year. So Prop I, Prop C, and general fund. Thank you. And then um, the is the funding for Radco the, the, those loans mm -hmm. is that sep that that existed pre-pandemic is that ongoing in an addition to this the Radco funding? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. So RADCO is an acronym for Rental Assistance Distribution Component at the Eviction Defense Collaborative. So it's a, a, a long time uh, rental assistance program at the EDC. Um, RADCO is really what the EDC calls their rental assistance kind of operation, uh, when in fact it's, it's uh, um, really SFE wrap. Uh, so RADCO at EDC is not separate and distinct from SFE rep. It's uh, SFE rep at EDC. Um, and uh, so that program, as Director Shaw uh, uh, indicated in the presentation, um, SFE rep will continue to be available to tenants facing eviction in court, uh, primarily through the EDC, since the EDC straddles both our eviction legal defense system, the tenant right to counsel, and SFE rep. Thank you. Um, one question that came from the, the um, MoCD email that we received around the pause in the program that was sent to the board, there was a comment that 
said that the controller's constraints on grantee advances limits the dollars that our CBO partners can disperse monthly. Can you describe what those, just explain that and describe what those controller constraints are? So, um, yes, Supervisor. Um, our, our, all of our community development programs actually operate on a reimbursement basis. And I think that, as we, we've talked about before, with this unprecedented amount of resources, um, you know, there was some clear feedback from the community partners that, you know, we're basically asking in some instances the community partners to front this money with the guarantee that they will receive these funds on a reimbursement basis. Um, we work with the controller's office to understand um, if there is a way to um, advance a portion of the money to make sure that we weren't straining the balance sheets of our community partners. And we've been working with the controller's office and working and understanding the budgets of our community partners um, to right size um, the amount of money um, that we were able to advance that that we believe can be responsibly managed by the partner and responsibly monitored by our respect by our office. And so in that instance, um, it's certainly once again, it's not a direct it's not a direct grant to these partners. And we've been working with the controller's office to understand how much money we could we could advance um, based off the, the budget and capacity um, and monitoring capacity of our organization and the organizations who are partnering. So is, the, is that currently one of the bottlenecks here, just in terms of clearing out these claims? Is, is a limit on how much we can advance? I, I, I'm just wondering how we unstick that because... Yeah, so I, so I, I would say, I would say no, yes and no. I would say no. I think that right now, I want to thank the controller's office and our fiscal team. You know, Benjamin McCloskey. I think you only see him at budget, but um, him and, and and the fiscal director have been working very hard on this. Um, there is, it's not necessarily the financial because for a while, and I think at the applications we're getting, we didn't have that advance space. We didn't have that advance in the initial. Um, iteration of the ERAP program and our staff and, and our partners delivered, right? Um, and I think that our, our negotiation and work with the controller's office has actually accelerated this. Um, once again, the bottleneck is that we are getting a lot more applications than just can be processed um, by just staff and with the case management and with the verification piece. And so it's less on the fiscal piece um, than it is on just the overall capacity of the system to absorb what's coming in and process that. You know, it takes a week to apply for an application. You know, it takes a week, maybe less than that, but it takes a number of weeks for verification, for case management, and for cutting checks. So what we're seeing is it's sort of easy to get in the system, but it takes the system some time to move you through the system. 
So we have, so, 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 so yeah. supervisor I'm bottlenecks to just real quick is that we have been working on some systemic issues. We learned something from San Francisco, from our initial local program with the state, in particular with our nonprofit partners where case management exists already um, or where, where we already verify income. Um, we are trying to find opportunities to batch those. So why do one by one-on-one if we know they're already in case managing those instances? We're working with property managers, case managers, um, and other those to identify bunches to move through. Um, if there are some that within affordable housing, how to work with those property managers um, to really make sure we, 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 we leave no one left behind. And that was a big that actually was um, a big push. I want to thank Google for that, that we were able to get our, our housers, our permanent supportive housing providers to get us the list. And we were able to work with the state and mobilize our partners to do one larger check to clear that backlog versus the one-on-one-on-one. -on -one -on -one. So we have been doing some process improvements when we know that the case management or the income verification or the property verification exists already um, due to uh, standing relationship that a resident may have with city services. Got it. Thank you. And so I just want to mm -hmm. be clear because what, what so what I'm hearing is that the I understand the staffing completing this ver the verification, basically reviewing and assessing the the applications. It sounds like that's the 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 backlog is primarily attributable to to limits on the ability to process this large number, not because of some constraint from the controller or otherwise around advancing funds. It, 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 that's, that's correct. That's correct, okay, uh, thank you. Um, and then just on the decision to, to pause the program, I just wanna ask you a little about that. Um, I, what what is the problem with continuing to accept applications? Uh, so, because we're we're not approaching any situation where we're running out of money. There's forty three million dollars. So, pre correct. presumably, even if every application that's come in was approved, verified, appropriate for distributing uh, funds, we we wouldn't have run through. Uh, the money. So um, obviously when, when we first heard you were pausing, that was my alarm. I, I, my concern was, have we run through the funds? Uh, and we're just hearing about it two days before. Because as, as I've always said, uh, and, I, and I think a lot of colleagues on this board has said, if we're at that point, right, we want to hear from MoCD and we want to have a discussion at the board about approving additional funds. Um, but we're not there, right? We got $43 million. So. Um, so why, why does the backlog cause us to pause? I understand why the backlog would cause us to take more time to process an application, but why, are we, why was the decision made to no longer accept applications for this, time, this upcoming well, time and, period? And so thank you for that. Um, it's about just being responsive. <laughs> You know, I, I, we also listen to our, our, our front desk. I get, I get a front desk report on what are, the, what are the number one calls that we're getting. And it was getting to a point that, um, you know, with 4,000 applications, we're working to, to clear that backlog. We're trying to get to hopefully up to 1,000 applications being processed a month. We're not there yet. Um, when someone calls for emergency rental assistance, the hope in the end is there's a turnaround time. And there was a real moment when in creating like legitimate angst, I believe, for residents that were seeking emergency program 
but 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 you know not being able to receive that resource for months out right like i i was saying this and this is the level of just sort of a gut check but also a process check is that if someone's asking for emergency rental assistance we need to be honest about how quickly we can respond to that and i think we need to be honest and right sizing the space to to be able to have some certainty about a response time and because there was still so much more going into the system. There can't be a moment, and we were actually on the state about this, where, where people had submitted applications in November and didn't get their checks um, for emergency rental assistance until April or May. And that's not a space of how MoCD wants to function. We want to be a responsive and timely program. And when we were looking at the analytics in the past, we were looking at what was going forward in the future, we were we were getting strained to a moment that the timeliness factor for responding with the resource um, was getting such that the emergency nature and then and then and the the need to respond to the emergency were not aligning. And so in that instance right now, we needed to to stop um, applications coming in the spigot to reform the systems to clear this to give a little little breather to all of us to be able to reset what we can to have um to build some more certainty in our ability to respond um to to an application that comes into the system going in the future so is the decision to pause primarily to manage the expectations of the folks applying? Is that, would that be a fair? No, I would, never, I would never say manage expectations because that's not the space where I work on that okay. supervisor, but it really wasn't, it was a question of the response, like, you know, it was, it, was, it was starting to be challenging to meet an immediate need, right? I, I, and, I, and I think that with the transition from COVID relief where there was eviction protections and there was a guarantee of 18 months, we felt comfortable that the, the money could take a little bit longer to come um, because, because we knew that the eviction protections right there, we had some certainty on the amount and we knew it was gonna come. And we were talking to the apartment association there. In this instance right now, um, the protection still exists, but the, the folks applying aren't, are some instances applying for back rent, but sometimes applying right now for immediate rent. You know what I mean? And so in that instance, we wanna make sure that we can have a timely response to meet an emergency request because we're seeing a little bit of COVID backlog, but we're seeing some current financial issues right now um, that we wanna make sure we be responsive to. So it's not managing expectations, okay. but it's really making sure that we can get some certainty about how long it's gonna take for us to respond. And we had to clear the system in some ways of some of the past COVID debt and those things to get to that right amount, that right, that right amount of time. How many new applications was the city receiving at the time the decision was made to pause the program? Like on a weekly basis, how many, how many applications were Chair Chan? Thank you, Chair Preston. I think, um you have really asked most of the questions that I intend to ask really specifically about um, 
applications and really funding sources, making sure that we have enough. I just want to have a clarifying point that was mentioned earlier uh, in the presentation and also in the answer, uh, answering pr uh, Chair Preston's question was that we already as a city process 5,000 5, households or applicants with the $33 million distributed and with about roughly 4,500 pending applications, but really what we're looking at is 2,250 2, households, um, and yet we still have about 43 million available for those 2,000-something households. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, to clarify, uh, Supervisor Chan, um, uh, it is true that we have $43 billion available in direct financial assistance. That's not to suggest that that will all go to the pending um, applicants. Uh, that's what we have available at this time. We'll have a portion of that available when we uh, resume accepting, uh, accepting new applications as well. And the 5,000... But the 40... I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, and the 5,000 that you processed were households or applications? A great question. They are households. Uh, all of these figures uh, in terms of tenants served are uh, by household. And that was roughly about 33 or 34 million distribu distributed for those 5,000 uh, 5, households? That's correct, Supervisor. And then with it, it, that... that was, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no go ahead. That, and that, that's been from the onset of the program before. So we're, we're counting our expenditure of local funds mm -hmm. over the course of the program. So that was the initial launch of the program, I believe, in March or April of 2021. Uh, June 2021. Yep. And that was June, about... June, 20, June 2021. Was it 2021 already? Because uh, that was, uh, but also was about roughly $58 million of states fund that we received for rent relief, though, didn't we? That's, that's, that's correct, Supervisor. And um, uh, the state of California was able to leverage more than $120 million beyond that as a result of our partnership. And so then, it is true that the state of California received $58 million from the U.S. Treasury for San Francisco. Uh, but through uh, legislation, the state of California actually tapped into its general fund um, to leverage an additional uh, more than $120 million for San Francisco through our partnership. Right. So so I, I think what I would love to see, if possible, is that for a follow-up that we could see a breakdown of funding sources and just uh, what has been spent and what has, what has remained to be available. I think that there's some... I'm trying to figure out, you know, when when you mentioned about, you know, while that not everybody could qualify, perhaps, you know, for the state and the local funding for rent relief. And you also mentioned availability of Prop I and Prop C funding, which I'm really grateful that we, we have that. And actually, in fact, thanks to Supervisor Preston with the Prop I transfer tax, that we're actually now being able to allocate those funding. Just would like to understand the breakdown for the previous 5,000 house, households and the upcoming about 2,000 something households that who, you know, how those funds are distributed among 
them and, and how much each, house, each household has received. In fact, I think that there was a resolution that I authored previously has asked specifically, we would also like to understand because I understand that with the re rent relief, it doesn't really go to the tenants directly, which I think that's what you're trying to solve. It's the reason why you have the backlog because you also understand that they need services as well. But at that time, we also understand that um, the rent relief really doesn't go to the tenants directly, but go to the landlord landlords and we would like to understand who are the landlords actually receiving these rent relief and be it is like small property landlords or is it corporate landlords in San Francisco and how how much each landlord have received um, so we, we like to actually understand the breakdown and tracking as well moving forward so thank you so much for all your work and that's all my questions I don't expect you to have all those answers for me today but like to see a breakdown Thank you, Vice Chair Chan. Um, one other question I have is, how are, you, how are you going to let residents know when the program resumes accepting applications? And, and, and do you have, um, will you be following up with people who submit during this period in which the, pause, uh, the program is paused? Yeah, so I, so, um, so I, I think that in this instance right now, we've been in clear coordination with our agency partners, with HSH. We've been in clear coordination with our, 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 our program administrators from the CBOs and our outreach mechanism. And so in that instance, as you know, so the outreach isn't stopping if there's still need for tenant protections in those other spaces. It's just the pivoting and the messaging right now at this moment. But we will continue to work with our, with our outreach partners, with our agency partners, and with the operations partners um, to communicate this. So we're doing a multi-channel, and with you all as well. So I want to let you know, I want to thank you um, very much for being responsive. I want to thank you for all the work you all did in amplifying this. I know it was in your newsletters. It was in tweets. Um, but I really want to thank um, the, the supervisors for, for their work and, and amplifying this initially um, as we launched both the local program, as we launched um, the transition to the state program, and we um, really tried to push folks to to get those applications in before March 30th of this year. And so in that instance, we will continue to, um, to coordinate with, with all of those channels to make sure that um, not only the people know the existing tenant protections, but um, when those applications will be received again. Thank you, Director Shaw. Supervisor Miniman. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just on that point, it doesn't. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what's hard and what's not hard. But it does seem to me that if I were trying to submit an application and then finding out that I couldn't even submit an application, that at the very least it would be nice if there were some way that I could request sort of easily. To, you know, I, I'm not able to submit this application, which makes my, um, you know, my case uh, as as Chair Preston is pointing out, maybe a little harder than it would ideally be. But but at least if I could know that as soon as this program starts taking applications that because I tried to submit an application I will be informed it just seems like the having <laughs> having a box to click for that and an email address or a phone number that I can put in so that I can then have some belief that I will hear at some point and don't have to keep checking a website might be nice yeah, we, we can, I appreciate that input supervisor and we'll keep updated on how we progress with that Thank you, uh, Supervisor Miniman and Director Shaw. And yeah, I, I think we all know with any program, right, it's 
it's hard to get, especially the most vulnerable folks, hard to get folks to apply even when there are resources there. So it's a huge success of this program um, mm -hmm. that the, the nonprofit partners and, and MoCD and HSH have gotten the word out to the point where 250 to 300 people a week are applying. So that's, that should be applauded. But I think we also know that if 300 people are receiving an email saying, sorry, you can't apply right now, some of them will remain in need, but will not reapply at some point in the future. So any, any extra care that we can take in terms of um, notification and tracking uh, of those folks, I think is, would, be, would be time well spent. I, and and I, I, I do wanna go back to, before we go to public comment here, just the numbers. I, I am concerned about not having um, a timeline for this to be done um, and would definitely appreciate in the upcoming you know, uh, week or two an update on projections because I think the email that was sent to the Board of Supervisors by uh, MoCD announcing this uh, estimated a two-month pause uh, in the program. But what I'm hearing in terms of the numbers is that we have a 4,000 application backlog and are aspiring to process about 1,000 applications per month. So that would suggest more like a four-month pause. Um, and that's just very concerning to me, and, and I think we really have to ask whether that is the best approach or whether we should be resuming the applications with a detailed disclaimer telling people this may take X number of months, right? And we are behind on, uh, on the backlog and working to get through that. So, um, you know, I think it's, it's one thing if this is a few weeks, a month, six weeks, but if we're looking three, four, five month pause, um, I, I think my question to you really to think about would be, what else do we need to be doing to scale up the capacity? You know, what would it take uh, to be able to, to unpause um, more quickly? But I, I will just leave that more as food for thought. And uh, Madam Clerk, if you could open up public comment on this item, that'd be great. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public in the chamber who would like to make public comment for item number four? Please line up to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Welcome. Now, okay, hi, I'm Shirley Thones Box. I wasn't here for this item, but I was so happy to hear it. And I just wanted to say kudos to the um, case managers for the rental assistance program in District 5 and District 10 whom I have been in touch with. And as um, late as, uh, I think it was Tuesday, if it wasn't Tuesday, it was Monday, I spoke with one of the um, case managers because uh, prior to the cutoff for the state or whatever, the, the last session of money, I have referred about 34, specifically 34 individuals for rental assistance and all but one uh, received their funds and one got evicted. We don't know what the situation is because of course they're not gonna tell us why. So kudos to them. And not only, it's a very comprehensive program that, um, thank you, uh, Director Shaw, I don't know you, but uh, if you're the director over this program, it's doing awesome work. That's the things we don't hear because people only speak up when 
it's not going their way or when they're dissatisfied. So I felt that I needed to um, commend the programs. The only two that I know that I'm working with is because uh, my work in a community with the shipyard, it overlaps with the work for people who are, because they're not worried about the shipyard if they can't, don't have a place to stay. So I just wanted to say that kudos to this program. And they told me uh, Tuesday or Monday that while they have a pause, that soon, one of the case managers told me, said, don't worry, we're going to open our program soon. And so that's within weeks. Thank you. Thank you. Seeing no more in-person public comment, we'll move to the remote call-in line, and we have six on the line, one in the queue. Mr. Kawane, can you please forward the caller? Hi, Supervisors. Uh, I am a District 5 resident in uh, the building of a big Wall Street landlord. I'm going to remain anonymous so I don't give that landlord any ideas. but. Uh, during the COVID crisis, I applied for rent relief and got it. Now, sort of post-crisis, even though the state of emergency is still in place, my income has partially returned, but it's intermittent. And I currently am able to pay rent, but I, have, but I can see the possibility that in the future I won't be able to because of the ongoing impacts that COVID has had on my income. In lowering my income. So it's really important that when this program gets started again, hopefully very quickly, it allows people to apply who have applied before and gotten rent relief <clears throat> but are not sure at this point whether they're going to need it again. I don't need it right now, but I might in the near future or even next year. So um, make sure, please make sure that you're not letting folks like me fall through the cracks whose income is, is returning but not as good as it used to be and might go, get into trouble. Thanks. Thank you, and that concludes the speakers for this item. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on this item is now closed. Um, I wanted to... Um, just before we wrap up, we the, the, and, and the speakers uh, really... Uh, remind me, our first speaker reminded me just of, of all the folks doing this work um, in getting the word out and who I, I agree are really some of the unsung uh, heroes here. Um, I wanted to go to see, sorry to put you on the spot, um, but if, if uh, anyone from OCD uh, can um, list out their 10 uh, CBO partners who are doing this work, uh, EDC, Eviction Defense Collaborative is the lead agency. Yeah. Can you just can you just read those off so the public uh, knows who's doing all this work with us to uh, to, to get these Certainly. funds out? Thank you, Chair Preston. That that's wonderful. Off the top of my head, and I and I'll, they'll come to me. So the Eviction Defense Collaborative, Catholic Charities, Young Community Developers, La Raza Community Resource Center. Homies organizing the mission to empower youth, or HOMI. Um, Hamilton Families, Compass Family Services, Homeless Prenatal, Native American Health Center, and one more. I apologize for that last one. It'll come back to me. 
<laughs> no, no problem. And with a list of 10, I'm impressed you could uh, get nine off the top of your, uh, your head, head there. Um, so yeah. Chair I, Preston, I'm sorry. I, I remembered it's Mission Neighborhood Centers. Excellent. So those are our 10. Excellent. Thank you so much. And, and it's really absolutely remarkable what these uh, organizations have, have done with uh, MoCD's leadership on this and with the, the commitment from the Board of Supervisors uh, and the mayor to really, I, I, you know, as, as our public commenter noted, we, we hear a lot of things when, when things are going wrong and the rent relief program, one of the reasons we wanted to have this hearing is to make sure we're not veering off and going wrong here and we're continuing to do what's been a very, uh, very successful program. I do want to note one last thing about this and that is we should not take for granted that we are in this position to provide these funds to uh, tenants and, uh, and, to the, and their landlords to resolve these uh, rent debt disputes. Um, or, or, or these debts, whether disputed or not, um, because of San Francisco voters. And so, you know, we are, a lot of times these, these ballot measures and things are an abstraction. Um, over $50 million of the funds going into this local program are because San Francisco voters approved Prop I and approved Prop C, major progressive uh, taxes, on the wealthy with a shared commitment uh, that these funds should be used in this way. So it's great to see them, the funds being used that way. Um, we look forward to getting some additional clarification on how we can, uh, the time frame for unpausing this program um, and for making sure folks don't fall through the cracks um, during the period uh, in which the program is, is paused. So I'm gonna go ahead and, and, um, and, and with thanks uh, to Director Shaw and Mr. Ramirez and uh, your whole team, uh, thank you for all of your, your work on this, and we look forward to getting the additional uh, information that we've discussed today, and um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, move to continue this item uh, to the call of the chair. Thank you to continue this item to the call of the chair. Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you, Madam Clerk. The motion passes, um, and let's go ahead and call items five and six together. Item number five is a hearing on the report released on June 1st, 2022 by the civil grand jury titled Buried Problems and a Buried Process, the Hunter's Point Naval Shipyard in a Time of Climate Change. For departments to review and report back to the Board of Supervisors on what each agency's response to the recommendations are and requesting San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, Department of Public Health, Environmental Protection Agency, Navy, and other related agencies to report. Item 6 is a resolution responding to the presiding judge of the Superior Court on the findings and recommendations contained in the 2021 through 2022 Civil Grand Jury Report entitled Buried Problems and a Buried Process the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard in a time of climate change, and urging the mayor to cause the implementation of accepting findings and recommendations through her department's heads and through the development of the annual budget. Members of the public who wish to provide public comment on this item should call the public comment line at 415-655-0001, meeting ID 2484-549-8965, then pound and pound again. 
If you haven't already done so, please dial star three to line up to speak. The system prompt will indicate that you have raised your hand. Please wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted and you may begin your comments when we go to public comment. Thank you. Um, Colleagues, this committee heard uh, these items during our last GAO meeting, uh, continued them to today. We're, we're at uh, President Walton's request. We're trying to finalize some amendments last time, but, uh, but needed a little more time. So I know uh, President Walton is uh, not able to be here in person today, but that his chief of staff, Natalie G, is here to uh, address the item and propose amendments to the board resolution. Welcome. Thank you, Chair Preston. Um, we emailed out the proposed amendments this morning, and I will read them on record right now. It starts from page 3, nine, uh, line 18. Resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports to the presiding judge of the Superior Court that they agree with finding number F4 for the reasons as follows. The report clearly indicates confusion around the Navy's cleanup process and timelines on the shipyard and the need for more transparency from the Navy. In addition, we find that the city and county of San Francisco has very little opportunity to influence the process set forth by the Navy for the shipyard cleanup as the Navy is a federal entity. However, the Office, and Com Office of Community Investment and Infrastructure, OCII, the successor agency to the former San Francisco Redevelopment Agency can determine whether or not a transfer of land from the federal government to the city would take place. And be it further resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports to the presiding judge of the Superior Court that they agree with finding number F5 for the reasons as follows. The city and county of San Francisco can most certainly work to increase staffing to adequately address the issues and problems that arose on the shipyard that have been missed by the federal facility agreement signatories. Seemingly, a deeper commitment from the city and county of San Francisco to identify additional issues in order to provide responses to new information or new problems is needed, and be it Further resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports to the presiding judge of the Superior Court that they partially agree with finding number F6 for the reasons as follows. The Board of Supervisors believes that the establishment of the Bayview-Hunters Point Shipyard Citizens Advisory Committee, CAC, along with the consistent meetings with the Navy and Environmental Protection Agency, EPA, demonstrates that a proactive mechanism does exist for the city and county of San Francisco to articulate its interests and concerns about the cleanup for the federal facility agreement signatories. Furthermore, the CAC's existence also demonstrates that the city and county of San Francisco understands the importance of community representation, feedback, and participation in ensuring the shipyard is clean and safe. There is, however, more to be desired in the area of monitoring progress towards satisfactory responses to such interests and concerns from the signatories, and more, and more effort is required to obtain timely and transparent responses from the Navy and all federal facility agreement signatories. And be it further resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number R2 will be implemented to secure an independent commission and third-party study of the Hunters Point shipyard to, pre to predict the future shallow groundwater surface 
groundwater flows and potential interactions of groundwater with hazardous materials and plan modifications to the site under multiple sea level rise scenarios is necessary. And we will work to secure the resources for the independent commission and third party study. In addition, the city needs to ensure that the appropriate city employees are attentive and prepared to respond to the issues presented in the report around groundwater and sea level rise. And it may be beneficial for the San Francisco Department of Public Health to assign additional staff to conduct this study and to urge the California Department of Public Health and the federal regulators like the Environmental Protection Agency and the California State Water Resources Control Board to do the same. We were not asked by the civil grand jury to respond to recommendation R1, but do agree an independent third party, party study is necessary and be it further resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number R3 will not be implemented because in lieu of creating a permanent oversight committee, the Board of Supervisors will create a short-term oversight committee or task force to develop recommendations to address the findings in the report. And that understanding the science is, is on groundwater and sea level rise is important in keeping people safe as the city is committed to doing and be it further resolved that the Board of Supervisors reports that recommendation number R7 will not be implemented. However, the Board of Supervisors intends to create a short-term task force within 18 months to, to develop recommendations to address the findings in the report and as an independent third-party entity that conducts the study to prepare a report on its recommended request for the federal facility agreement signatories based on its findings and deliver that report to the Board of Supervisors, the Mayor, and the Department of Public Health. And be it further resolved that the San Francisco Department of Public Health will be monitoring the indefinite five-year review from the Navy to evaluate the protectiveness of past remedies to ensure that their ongoing cleanup and solutions remains protective. This process began in 2018. And be it further resolved that the Board of Supervisors urges the mayor to cause the to cause the implementation of the accepted findings and recommendations through her department heads and through the development of the annual budget. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. G, for reading the, uh, the proposed amendments. And we'll take those up after, uh, after public comment. I, I do wanna um, thank you uh, and your office and President Walton for, for all the work on this and appreciate what I think are are really strong, um, a strong response from, from the board um, around the issues raised um, by the civil grand jury in the report that we've discussed at length in the last uh, two hearings on this and to community concerns raised. And I, and I think trying to navigate that with the jurisdictional issues, but also not uh, continue what you know is sometimes done uh, on some of these complicated issues which is to say it's someone else's problem I think that's this these amendments really and President Walden's really leaned into this to say what what can we control here in the city in terms of establishing um, this kind of task force and in terms of getting an independent study done uh, which I think are really key parts of the grand jury report and uh, and of the demands from uh, the public and recognizing that while we may not have jurisdiction to control everything, we do have the ability to take those steps and appreciate those those recommendations. So I just really want to commend President Walton and his team for 
for navigating this and finding a way to really be responsive to the grand jury's report and uh, the, the very reasonable and important demands from community members. Um, so thank you. Uh, let's, uh, unless there are comments or questions from colleagues, let's go ahead and open up public comment on items five and six. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Are there any members of the public in the chamber who would like to make a public comment on items five and six? Please line up to your right. Remote public call-in members, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates you have been unmuted. Thank you. Dr. Ahimsa Portisum Chai, I was elected to the Hunters Point Shipyard Restoration Advisory Board uh, in the year 2000 and 2001. I founded the radiological uh, subcommittee, and it should be noted that much of the uh, discourse with regard to the five-year uh, plan centers around health protective uh, prelim preliminary remediation goals for radionuclides, specifically thorium and uh, radium-226. One of the elephants in the room uh, in both the civil grand jury report and in our discussions is what is in shipyard groundwater. Uh, and I brought uh, an important document to you that you should have since you own this property. Uh, this is the parcel A record of decision from November 1994, uh, and it documents that on the uh, property that the city and county now owns, uh, these substances were detected in groundwater. There was no health uh, risk assessment conducted because it was presumed uh, that there weren't pathways of exposure for this groundwater that contains many of the heavy metals uh, that we uh, are detecting uh, in residents living within the one mile uh, buffer zone of the system of federal Superfund sites at the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard. Uh, this is a Navy map that identifies the extent of radiological contamination of the shoreline. This is another uh, Navy map in which we have geolocated uh, residents and workers with radionuclides in their uh, urine. This is a photo that I took of the Hunters Point Shipyard shoreline the weekend that the civil grand jury report was released. I walked up to this shoreline. It is radiation contaminated. This is the type of dust uh, fence that should be uh, placed uh, to be more protective. This is another photo that was taken by a resident. I apologize, Dr. Porter Shumchai, but your time has lapsed. Thank you. Shirley the Holmes Box again. And I'm here not as, I, I took off work to be here as a resident. And I wanted to just uh, preface my comments by saying thank you to the esteemed uh, board members, including, of course, uh, President Walton, for the resolution. We appreciate it. It's a step forward. Um, it's come to my attention and the attention of my colleagues and others that um, Angeles uh, Herrera, the US EPA, I sent you guys um, the press release, uh, falsified or misled us at the 20, on the 29th uh, regarding the EPA's position. And even at that, and I'm paraphrasing, but she did state very clearly uh, that if uh, in response to uh, President Walton's question, she said, if the Navy didn't respond, she'd go to the Pentagon. 
Now, I'm not new to this system, and so I know, having worked for four mayors, that she's just protecting uh, you know, her job. So we're not even gonna get into that. I will say this. One of the things that the President uh, uh, Walton stated is he said as long as he's here, there will not be any transfers. So we need to, I'm supporting the young African-American leaders to ensure that that is the case. And the next thing is um, the um, public health issue. It is a public health issue. It's not about housing. And then I want to close by saying that we need to just call the commander in chief about the Navy, who is President Joe Biden, at 202-456-1111, and say, save the people from sickness and death, clean up what the Navy left. That's 202-456-1111. Get the Commander-in-Chief involved or kick him out of office. Thank you for your comments. Seeing no more in-person public comment, we'll move to the call-in line. There are currently nine people on the call and six in the queue. Mr. Kawana, please send the first caller. Hello, my name is Patrice Sutton. I'm an environmental health scientist, collaborating research scientist at UCSF's program on reproductive health and the environment, and co-chair of San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibilities Environmental Health Committee. And I'm speaking in my role with SF Bay PSR, as well as being a resident of the Castro since 1982. I appreciate this committee's attention to the civil grand jury's report. Indeed, a radioactive and toxic soup will be served up on our shores as the rising sea meets the radioactive waste languishing for decades at Hunters Point Shipyard. I urge the Board of Supervisors to take intentional and explicit action to avoid such a catastrophe. In doing so, you'll be seeking long overdue justice for the people of Bayview Hunters Point, past, present, and future, whose health has been sacrificed without their consent by this contamination. Specifically, I implore you to resolve very explicitly that you will not allow the transfer of this shipyard land unless it is cleaned up to the most protective standards, that is, unrestricted residential use. You have this power, please use it. Don't be found derelict in your duty by future generations. Over 20 years ago, I cast my vote along with 86% of other voters that the shipyard should be cleaned up to meet residential standards. It's outrageous that just days ago, the US EPA has said they will not hold, clean, the, hold, hold the cleanup to these standards. If the EPA is allowed to prevail, it will perpetuate the intergenerational health disaster and structural racism that, re that resides at the intersection of sea, roys, sea rise and Hunters Point shipyard. To protect the health and halt this grave injustice, the Board of Supervisors must resolve to not accept any land unless it is consistent with the cleanup standards articulated by voters and the Board of Supervisors in Prop P. Please ensure that our city is not allowed to remain a radioactive waste dump. Thank you so much. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Hello, my name is Glenn Rogers. I'm a uh, landscape architect and I have uh, written uh, numerous articles for the West Side Observer. Most recently, I, uh, I wrote an article that was, uh, it's climate change, stupid. Forgive me, the, the name of the article was not the, uh, <laughs> decided by me, but by another editor. What I wanted to uh, mention is that uh, 
we are for the removal of, uh, of all to toxic uh, substances of, uh, on Hunters Point and Treasure Island to be at uh, 100%. And I wanted to mention that recently there has been a study that the water underneath the uh, Thwaites uh, Glacier in uh, Antarctica is uh, 40 degrees, which is to say that, that that glacier is going to be melting when that happens. Uh, the sea level rise will, uh, uh, some people feel, will come up 10 feet. And as you know, the Nord Stream um, pipeline has been damaged and has been uh, leaking uh, methane into the uh, atmosphere, atmosphere at tr tremendous amounts. And all of this, too, is going to be acceler accelerating climate change. Uh, we ask for the controller to provide an uh, oversight committee uh, for the, any cleanup that occurs in uh, Hunter's Point. And we wanted to bring to your attention the need for housing is not uh, terribly demanding when we have 6% of the population in San Francisco leaving, uh, 40,000 40, units uh, vacant in San Francisco, and that 22% of the office space is vacant in San Francisco. All of this is because uh, San Francisco is one of the I apologize for interrupting the, the caller, but your time has lapsed. Thank you for your comments. Next comment, please. What do I do? What do I do to unmute? Hello? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. It's a little bit muffled. Oh, I'm 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 very sorry. I just uh, my name is Dr. Robert Gould. For identification purposes, I'm an associate adjunct professor at UCSF, working in our program on reproductive health and the environment. I'm speaking today as president of San Francisco Bay Physicians for Social Responsibility, representing many hundreds of health professionals throughout our region. We speak for the health of our patients and community including those in Baby Hunters Point who've been harmed by the significant but still inadequately characterized radioactive and other toxic waste left in the wake of Navy operations dating from decades ago. And as a recent grand jury report indicated, these health threats are expected to be magnified by rising sea levels and extreme weather events that will increasingly occur as part of our unfolding climate crisis. I was one of a group of concerned citizens who met with Carlton Waterhouse at National EPA last year, urging the EPA to conduct a thorough and critical review of the cleanup plan and emphasizing the need for EPA to support the explicit policy affirmed by 86% of San Francisco voters 20 years ago that the shipyard cleaned up to the strictest standards possible to permit unrestricted residential use. After a year's delay and just a day after the last hearing of this body, we finally received a partial response clearly indicating that EPA has decided to not support such health protective standards in clear opposition to Supervisor Walton stated, quote, number one goal for the shipyard has to be and should be 100% complete cleanup, unquote. Given this outrageous abdication of EPA's public duty, we at San Francisco Bay PSR urge the San Francisco Board of States to explicitly resolve to not allow the transfer of shipyard land unless it's cleaned up to the most protective standards for unrestricted residential use. This would be a major demonstration of support for the I apologize for the interruption, Dr. Gould. Your time has lapsed. I apologize for the interruption. Mr. Kawana, can you please send the next caller? 
Good afternoon, Supervisors. Eric Brooks with the local grassroots organization, Our City San Francisco, which has worked for the last couple of decades to help deal with the toxic and radioactive contaminants in Bayview and on Treasure Island. Uh, I wanted to cover something that's not been covered sufficiently, but other commenters are now mentioning, and that is it's great that Supervisor Walton for the first time said we need 100% cleanup, but now we need to define what that means. So we need a full 100% cleanup of Bayview Hunters Point and Treasure Island, uh, as a previous uh, commenter mentioned, to unrestricted residential standards and for single family homes. So what that means is that all toxins are removed with no caps or containment so that residents can safely plant food gardens and children and pets can safely play in yards, natural areas, and recreational areas. There are lots of recreational sports areas for kids on Treasure Island, for example, uh, <clears throat> and parks in the Bayview. We also need to make sure that when this committee is set up to oversee the cleanup, that community members from the Bayview and Treasure Island must be full voting members on the oversight committee or that committee will be worthless. We need to make sure that the community is guiding the process directly, that's crucial. And then finally, as I mentioned last time, we need to make sure the San Francisco Department of Public Health helps Treasure Island and the Bayview do direct public health studies on residents and visitors of Bayview, Hunters Point, and Treasure Island and workers on those places. And if the DPH refuses to do this, then the Board of Supervisors should hold their funding until they do. Those are my comments, thanks. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. My name is Dan Hirsch. I'm the retired director of the Program on Environmental and Nuclear Policy at UC Santa Cruz and president of the Committee to Bridge the Gap and co-author of a series of reports on Hunters Point. I need to call to the attention of the members of this board that one week ago, US EPA presented to you a series of platitudes that they were committed to environmental justice and that Hunters Point was a top priority. And they did not disclose to you that the very next day, they issued a statement saying they will not comply with this board's policies and with Prop P and with the requirements that President Walton has set out. They will not require cleanups to the most protective EPA standards as Prop P and your board's policies require. This is extraordinary because it means that a vast amount of contamination will simply be left in place. I urge this board to revisit then one sentence in your resolution which deals with the issue of the transfer to the, uh, to the city and county and simply put into it the language that you had from President Walton three weeks ago, that the number one goal for the shipyard has to be and should be 100% cleanup and that without 100% cleanup, that land transfer does not take place. I urge you to amend the resolution to include President Walton's statement in light of what the EPA has now done, which says that they, have, they say they will not clean up the site to a level that is uh, protective for unrestricted use. There's a great deal of health risk if this is not done. I urge you to consider that change. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. There are currently seven callers on the line with three in the queue. May we please have the next caller?
Uh, hello, thank you, uh, Supervisors and President Walton. Um, my name is Blair Sandler. I am a PhD in environmental economics. I taught uh, environmental economics and cost-benefit analysis, among other courses, around universities in the Bay Area for a number of years. I am also a resident of the Bayview. Want to just point out that all of the comments have been unified. And I want to reiterate that, one, we need a full cleanup of the shipyard, all the contaminants and toxins and radioactive elements removed with no capping to single uh, family residential standards so that kids and pets can play on the yards and that food can be grown in people's um, yards. And then secondly, that the oversight committee that will be created must include Bayview residents, Bayview Hunters Point residents as full voting members. Again, people have made all of the uh, important points about what you need to do. The board must commit to refuse to accept any transfer of land unless it has met these requirements. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. Next caller, please. Uh, hi, my name is Dr. Kim Rhodes. I'm the Associate Director for Community Engagement for the UCSF Cancer Center, and I am charged with um, ensuring that the research in our cancer center is responsive to the requests and the needs of our community partners um, and the communities that surround us, including understanding the distribution of cancer. And I just wanted to point out that one of the, the key pieces I think that is missing from this conversation that may help the board in making this decision is to, um, to understand that when we look at or ask questions about cancers that are occurring in Bayview, we need to be very specific and make sure that we're asking questions about cancers that are potentially specific or driven by uh, the known contaminants that are in the area. During a recent study that we did with some of the residents who have lived in Bayview over the uh, over two decades, including leukemia, as well as lung cancer. And what we found was that there is a disproportionate distribution of leukemias in Bayview compared to the rest of San Francisco. And it's not a small difference, it's a large difference. It leads one to question whether or not these are driven by exactly what people are living around. Um, and so um, this is, uh, I think, my call to you all to look into the future, regardless of who will be living there. You need to understand that this distribution of leukemia will persist as long as the contaminants persist there as well. So I would encourage the board to exert its power to take the steps to safeguard community health. Do not allow the transfer unless the land is cleaned up to, as you've heard repeatedly, un to meet unrestricted residential standards. Thank you. Thank you for your comments. May we please have the next caller? My name is Anne-Marie Charlesworth, and I work with Dr. Rose at the UCSF Cancer Center. I'm here to ask your support of resolutions to implement the civil grand jury report, buried problems in a buried process, the Hunters Point Naval Shipyard in a time of climate change. Dr. Rose and I, along with Drs. Tracy Woodruff and Bob Gould, Jeff Rook, Dan Hirsch, and Michelle Pierce met with Carlton Waterhouse, a deputy assistant administrator at the US EPA and other federal and regional EPA staff over a year ago to share the science of what we knew about the toxins buried in the shipyard, 
followed by a second meeting at which we requested several actions to ensure a proper and thorough cleanup along with a timeline for doing so. We were told in numerous emails that the US EPA was taking this, ser this issue seriously and would ensure the Navy implements a cleanup that safeguards the Bayview Hunters Point community. Last week, one day after your committee meeting on the grand jury report, where it was announced the US EPA and Waterhouse were taking this issue seriously, we received an email from the US EPA saying they were not going to do a top to bottom review or even hold the cleanup to the most protective standards, essentially shutting off our continued work with them on this issue. I think you and the community should know this. There will not be increased oversight. Our UCSF team has been meeting with women in the Bay of U Hunters Point who are surviving rare cancers and who have mothers, sisters, and other family members who have died from them. This is beyond tragic and shouldn't be acceptable anywhere. But yes, this is an issue of structural racism and its deadly consequences. The Board of Supervisors needs to forbid any transfer of land so long as regulators decline to clean it up to the most protective standards for unrestricted residential use. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your comments. There appear to be no other callers in the queue. Thank you, Madam Clerk. Public comment on these items now closed. Uh, thank you to all the commenters. Um, and unless there are further questions or comments, um, I, uh, Vice Chair Chant, go ahead. Thank you. I, I just wanted to thank um, President Walton and his team for the work as well and would like to be added as a co-sponsor to this response. I think it's been uh, well thought out and I know it's a, it's really put the city and, and all of us in a very tough spot um, to really um, hold that tough position to say we we demand a cleanup for the sites and and for really for the, our community. And I think that um, with the civil grand jury report, the result is not just about Bayview Hunters Point. And I really think that it started to help us to really think about and question the future of San Francisco in terms of our waterfront and uh, areas and how do we protect our residents um, and beyond. So thank you. Thank you, Vice Chair Chan. Um, I also do want to just uh, clarify for the public. I think there were a lot of uh, good points made in public comment. Some, some of them requesting further amendments. I do want to remind folks that, the, that what is before us is a response to a grand jury report and we are statutorily required under California law to respond to the various findings and recommendations. So some of the suggestions uh, may be things that, that uh, the, the board you know, should consider in the future. I'm sure there'll be an ongoing discussion and dialogue on that. Um, but I think at this time, uh, I'm eager for us to move uh, these amendments forward, get them to the full board. Um, appreciate the time we've taken in a number of hearings, but we also have uh, some deadlines with the court that we want to make sure we uh, comply with in getting our responses uh, moved forward. So I'd like to go ahead and uh, and move the amendments that were distributed by President Walton's office and, and read into the record uh, by Ms. G and less our deputy city attorney uh, Givener tells me we need to do anything additional and okay great I'll go ahead and, and um, move those amendments to the resolution okay. vice chair Chan aye. member Mandelman aye. Mandelman I chair Preston I Preston I there are three eyes 
Thank you. The uh, motion to amend passes. Um, and then I'd like to move to send the uh, resolution, that's item six, as amended to the full board uh, with positive recommendation. Thank you. Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Aye. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Thank you. That motion passes. Uh, and lastly, I'd like to move uh, to continue item five to the call of the chair. Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. Through the chair, actually, with the answers for item number six, you can file that item for item number five. Is that, is, is that uh, correct, uh, Deputy City Attorney Givner? I, I'm not sure because it references doing some things in terms of setting up task force and so forth, so I don't know whether we should... Need to, need to keep it open or can file it? Can you give clarity? Uh, Deputy City Attorney John Givner, you can file the hearing item and the board could consider establishing a task force in the future through an ordinance or hold additional hearings under another file. Okay, thank you. Then we'll, we'll uh, do we need to rescind that? I know we were in the middle of calling the roll on that. Do we need to finish or yes. can we just start again with a different motion? Rescind, okay. Let's move to rescind the, the, the vote on the motion to continue to call the chair. On the motion to rescind the vote, Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston. Aye. Preston, aye. There are three vote ayes. Thank you. Thank you. That motion passes, and now uh, I'd like to uh, make motion to file uh, item five. On the motion to file the hearing, Vice Chair Chan. Aye. Chan, aye. Member Mandelman. Mandelman, aye. Chair Preston? Aye. Preston, aye. There are three ayes. That motion passes. Any further business before the committee? There's no additional business. Thank you. We are adjourned. <laughs>